We'll, we'll, we'll talk to you again about this, remind you again next week. But I just wanted to get you prepped so you can start thinking about it. Who is in your life already? Who's God placed in your life that he's really put as a burden on your heart right now? Okay? So today we're going to continue in our talk about building blocks, about, about building some foundations. We talked about it last week. Very important that the foundation is right. Very important that, the, that the, everything squares up and makes sense. And so we're going to talk about a big piece today. We're going to talk about one that, uh, that kind of scares people a lot. And so I wore my suit or my coat and my tie today. This is not a full suit. If I ever come in vest and tie, I'm coming right into your kitchen. Right now we're just going to operate in the living room today. Okay. But it's going to be significant. It's a piece of, of, of information that, if overlooked, will leave you questioning the character of God. Okay? And a bunch of us do. A bunch of us ask questions about the character of God as it relates to this all the time. The world, the culture around us asks questions about the character of God based on what we're going to talk about this morning. And so I'm going to try to cover a lot of ground in a short while. I probably won't. But here we go. We're going to start out with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. What's the chapter? What's the verse? Hebrews 1, 3. Hebrews 1, 3. The reason I want you to get this is because it's one of those pivotal passages in Scripture. John 10, 10, we talk about all the time in our church. Christ came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. This is one that's just as significant, just as key. This is a pivotal passage because it says Jesus is the imprint, the exact imprint of God's very being. Think about that for a second. Now, a lot of people like Jesus and don't like God. In fact, I know a lot of folks, uh, Christians especially, who, who Christians pretty much only, who read the New Testament and think about the New Testament, but the Old Testament, God's freaky to them. It's a little scary. But it says, Jesus, He is the reflection of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's very being. That is a huge statement. That is a massive statement. You can read this in lots of different versions. One of my favorites is the express image of God. Jesus is the express image of God. Wrapped up in a human body, living in a human culture, living in a time and place, but the express image of God. You can't split them apart. You can't have good, happy, wonderful, grace-filled, merciful Jesus and mean, angry, wrathful, cranky God. Because they're the same. So either you have to have mean, cranky, wrathful Jesus, or you've got to figure out what this thing's about. Okay? So I want to try to unpack a little bit of that today. So here we go. If God is love, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Right? Pretty clear description of God. Does that say Jesus is love? The text doesn't say that, but it means it, right? God is love, Jesus is love, Holy Spirit is love. Right? Okay, you got you got to be willing to buy because because this is the first cell on the bench. We've, we're on the couch. I've just hit you with the first cell. This is always the easy one. We always start with the easy one. We're going to hit you with the hard one later. Okay, the Bible says God is love. Therefore, the Trinity, all of them, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, it's love. It is an expression of that of who of their character. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Hebrews one three. We just read it. If God is love, and Jesus is an exact imprint of God's nature, Jesus is love. And God is love. Okay. Therefore, the biblical narrative, the entire biblical narrative should reflect that fact. Yeah? A salesperson calls this a setup. Right? So we've set it up. 
We've, we've, made the, we've made the introductions. We've agreed on what we agree upon. Now we can start to move forward. Now, but, but this is a really important, pivotal understanding. Pivotal understanding. This is why this is a building block idea. Because once you get this settled, it changes the way you look at a lot of other things. And it makes you ask different questions. It makes you ask different questions. With different questions comes different answers. So we're going to go to 1 Chronicles 21 for a picture of this story. 1 Chronicles 21. I know you're probably not wandering through Chronicles on a regular basis. But 1 Chronicles 21, you might find this, this, this an interesting story. <coughs> the, the, the text starts, chapter 1, verse 1. Now Satan stood up against Israel. Who did? The adversary, Satan, the one who was op- opposed to the people of God, stood up in opposition to Israel, the nation of God. O- opposition to who? Israel, the nation of God. Opposition to who? Israel, the nation of God. Satan stood up against Israel, so he's standing up against the nation, and look at what he does. He moved David to number Israel. So, doesn't sound like such a big deal, does it? Wouldn't you wish Satan stood up against you and wished you something this easy? Easy, easy before you say yes to that. When you start to unpack the story, things get hairy quick. So this is, but, but I want you to get the players here. Satan, the adversary, stood up against the nation and moved David, the individual. Satan, the adversary of all of God's followers, stood up against the nation of Israel and moved David. Why David? Because at the time, David is the king of Israel. He's the most influential man in Israel. And he is a paragon of spirituality in Israel. Okay, he is, he, is the, he is such a clear representative that no one questions his connection with God. He's later called a man after God's own heart. I love to read the story of David because his actions don't always appear to be those of a man after God's own heart. And it gives me, per, gives me personal uh, solace that somebody who has this many ups and downs in his walk with God could actually be named in that way. It tells me that God is gracious and merciful. Now, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab, Joab's his uh, general, the military leader, and the leaders of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba in the south. That's down in the desert. Uh, think of the Negev. Think of, uh, of down as Israel starts moving south. You get a picture of Israel in your mind, moves south, and it starts moving towards Egypt, that sort of barren desert that's down south, to Dan. Dan is up in the north. It's the northern portion of Israel. It's the northern barrier of Israel. It's the most most northern town. It's one of the coolest places when you go to Israel, and all of you should. It's one of the coolest places that you want to visit when you go to Israel. Um, one of the it's one of the branches. It's one of the sources uh, of the uh, of the the, uh, the River Jordan comes up out of the ground. It's it's spectacular. Enough said about it. And bring the number of them to me that I may know it. So go and go through the whole country from the top to the bottom, bottom to the top. Count everybody and bring the number to me. Does this sound like a big deal to you? In, in, in In just straight human terms, it's just counting. It's just counting. How many people are here? That's all I want to know. How many people are here? And they start counting. But look at this. Watch how Joab answers. Joab, I have a little trouble with. Joab does a bunch of stuff in the, in the text that I don't like. In fact, 
Um, there are lots of times when Joab does stuff and I think God couldn't possibly be leading him to do that. But in this case, Joab's sense of the will of God is much stronger than that of David. Joab says, May the Lord make His people a hundred times more than they are. Who will make the people a hundred times more? God. The Lord God. So who's going to do that? God is. May the Lord make the people of Israel a hundred times more than they are. But my Lord the King, are they not all my Lord's servants? May God, may, may God multiply them a hundred times. Aren't they all in your service? Easy, buddy. Don't get yourself all, all carried away. Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? I'll show you later why this is, uh, this is specifically called out by God. But I want you to understand the question is clear. David wants to count the people. Joab makes it clear. If David doesn't, isn't aware of it, Joab makes it absolutely clear. You're going to bring trouble in Israel if you do this thing. Okay? So it's, there's no question. Cards are all out on the table. Satan, the adversary of God's followers, has come against the people, the nation of Israel, and he's moved David to count them. And when David says, Joab, go count everybody, Joab says, don't do it. You are going to cause trouble in Israel. It's going to cause trouble if you do this thing. I want you to stop and think about this for just a second. Think about this in modern terms. What was David supposed to be trusting in? God. What's the count about to do? It's going to give David an opportunity to trust his armies, right? So the question in modern terms is, who am I supposed to trust in? And what is it that I'm actually trusting in? I've told you before, I'll probably tell you again, as a preacher, one of the worst days of my experience was when, he be- when I became competent. When I was a young pastor, they threw me into stuff. I was lost all the time. I walked into a board meeting. They don't teach pastors much about accounting. So those of you who are accountants should grab the young pastors when they come in, take the church uh, record, so can you go through the financial record, sit down with them and say, I know you don't know anything about this. And if they say, oh, yes, I do, just say, well, I'm going to teach you anyway. And go through it step by step by step and say, this is what this means. This is what this means. This is what it means. A debit, a credit, a, a, a delta. That's a term I didn't even learn until the last 10 years. 30 years I've been a pastor. Somebody should have told me. I sat there at board meetings where I was in charge, completely baffled about what I was reading. You know what you do in that case? Pray. Listen very closely for somebody to give you a clue and you pray. And I got up to preach. And I had had speech classes and preaching classes. But you know how quickly the three sermons you wrote in preaching class are done? Less than one month. What do you do on the fourth week? Start fresh. And you know what you do when you're starting fresh with nowhere to begin and no idea what you're actually doing? You pray. And when you are incompetent, you pray a lot. Sometime in those, I don't know, first 10 years, I became competent. When I became competent, I stopped praying so continuously. Who and what are you trusting? 
Are you trusting in your own competence? Are you trusting in your own skill set? Are you trusting in you or are you trusting in God? Now, I'm not telling you to abandon all, all, all thought of planning and preparation. No, the Bible is clear on planning and preparation. But ultimately, even with planning and preparation, the final word has to be God's. The final word has to be God's, and the trust, the faith of it all has to be in God. So David decides to count the army, and Joab says, this is a really bad idea. It's going to cause guilt. It's going to cause a problem for the people of Israel. Now, why would it cause a a problem for the people of Israel if David was doing it? Why does Satan come out to attack the people of Israel and David's doing it? Because David as the king is going to affect the nation of Israel. Got it? Okay. I know, uh, putting these pieces in place, you kind of go, where are we going? What are we doing? Why are we talking about this? Just stick with me a little bit. Stick with me a little bit. God was displeased with this thing. We've, we've skipped some things. God was displeased with this thing, this counting that David had done, and therefore he struck David. Who did the counting? David. Why is he mad at the people? God was displeased with this thing, therefore he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done a very, I have done very foolishly. Here's the deal. There's a great psalm, Psalm chapter 20. In Psalm chapter 20, there's this sort of setup in the story about, about the difference between Israel and other lands, the difference between Israel and Egypt, and the difference between Israel and the people around them. And it says this, this famous line. In fact, it's a song that Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote. It says, Others trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So the difference between Israel and all the other nations was that those nations based their security on their armies. They based their security on their strength. They based their security on what they could do. Israel's security was based on one thing and one thing alone, the power and authority of their God. It's all the difference in the world. It's a massive difference. And here's David before the entire nation as the leader of the nation saying, hey, let's find out how big our army is. Well, why would a king who goes to war every spring count his soldiers? So he knows what he can trust. And Joab saw it from the first moment he said it. Lord, Lord, the Lord our God is who we trust, David, not the army. We, you know, David, you, you, have these, you have these 30 men, three of which are amazing, but you have these 30 men, by the way, Uriah the Hittite's one of them, and you have these 30 men who, who by themselves take on hundreds and thousands of other men. These men have been known to walk into a field of barley and fight 3,000 men by themselves. You and I both know that's not them, that's God. You and I both know that you didn't defeat Goliath on your own strength. You and I both know that the Pharisees, that, or that, that, sorry, that, that the fight, the battles that we have fought, that have pushed the Philistines back to the sea, those are not won by us, they've been won by God. You and I both know that God's protected you. You and I both know that God is the reason that we succeed. You and I both know that it's not the army, it's God. 
And David says, count the army. And God says, David, you now are about to turn the entire nation away from their faith in me to a faith in the army. Do you see the problem? Do you see why it's a national problem? It's more than just David. Satan attacked the people. The adversary of God's people attacked the people of God. How did he attack the people of God? He got David to count the army so that the people of Israel would look at the strength of their own army instead of the power and authority of their God. Do you see it? Okay. So Gad, the prophet of the moment, so Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord your God, Choose for yourself either three years of famine, three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies, or else three days of the sword of the Lord. Three years of famine, three months of defeat by your enemies, or three days of the sword of the Lord. The plague in the land, this is the sword of the Lord, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territories of Israel. How would you like to be on on the horns of this dilemma? Okay, guys, you pick. Three years of famine. First thing I'd start wondering is how much is in the barns, but then I'd be counting again instead of depending upon God. Three months of defeat by your enemies. David has been fighting back the enemies of, of Israel his whole life. He knows what kind of damage the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Philistines can do. Or three days in the hands of God. None of them look like a good option. Why? He counted. Do you get the significance of the national problem? Do you understand this is a tipping point for the faith of the people of Israel? Do you understand the significance of leading a group, a nation, to follow after God in faith? That's what's happening here. Consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said, I'm in great distress. I always want to follow this up with, you idiot. You did all this. You caused all this. And none of this punishment is aimed at you, by the way. Thank you very much. I'm in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are very great. So David knows something about God. He's saying, "Ah, yeah, I don't want any of this, but if I have to, I want to be in the hand of one who is merciful in the end. His mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel in 70,000 men in Israel fell. Boom! Here's our problem. Who is this guy? Who is this God? Jesus. Loving, kind, saving, blessing, walking around, whole villages are healed, loving and caring for people, preaching, just believe and you will be saved. That Jesus. 
is the exact imprint of this God. Same being. Who is this guy? And who is that other guy? And why are they so messy and different? There are people who set up an entire theology to separate these two beings. There's an entire theology out there called dispensationalism where it says the God of the Old Testament was working with different rules than the God of the New Testament. Well, they're partly right. But it's the same God. No change of heart. So what does all this hang on? What's the variable? What was the first verse? The adversary of God's people came against the nation of Israel. And he attempted to do something that would tip the faith of the entire nation. Here's what I want you to understand. Throughout the Old Testament, you will find an application of law that relates to the nation that's different from an application of law that, in, that relates to the individual. Do you hear that? Let me start on this side. I know these, these hands make a big difference. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, you will find an application of law that relates to the nation. Okay? That is different from the application of law that relates to the individual. Get it? Okay. Think about it for a second. Now think about all those big pictures that you've had questions. How is God behaving like this? 70,000 people just died. These are, these are those questions people bring to the pastor. Explain that to me. This is why pastors keep studying and keep praying. When this is, these are the moments when you realize you actually are still incompetent. The nation of Israel's faith in God as their protector hung in the balance of this day. The nation of Israel's faith in their God as their protector hung in the balance of this day. And the choice that David was making to number the armies was going to impact whether they trusted in God or they trusted in chariots. Whether they trusted in God or they trusted in horses. Whether they trusted in God or they trusted in the number of people they could bring out to fight the Philistines. A guy named Gideon's going to fight a huge number of the neighboring Amorites. Huge number of people. Hundreds of thousands is the estimate. And God says, go get an army. He shows up with a tenth at max of the group. And God says, you have too many. That dwindles down to a handful, and he says, you have too many. He gets down to 300 men. And then you know what God says? Um, put away their swords. Don't take, your, uh, don't take your weapons. Take a torch and a pot and go attack this mighty horde. Because this isn't about you, mighty warrior. This is about your God. National law is applied differently than individual law. Quick, just quick, quick story. I wish I had the clock timer out here. What time is it? David decides to take the ark up to Jerusalem. 
It's been in someone's house since Saul had been using it as a, as a good luck charm and taking it out to battle with him. He decides to take it up to Jerusalem. It seems reasonable to him. He goes to the people of Israel and he says, Hey, what do you guys think? You're the leaders of Israel. Should we take the ark up to, the, up to Jerusalem? Everybody says, Yay, great idea. Let's do that. Who was left out of the equation? God. He did not ask God. You read this passage. The next two times he goes to war. Boom, Philistines 1, Philistines 2. He asked God before he did anything. He gets it on a cart. It'd been hauled on the cart by the Philistines. That seemed to go all right. Puts it on a cart. Two guys are in charge of, walk to, of walking with this cart and keeping the oxen moving. And as they're walking along, the cart hits a, a change in the road. It hits a threshing floor. And when it hits the threshing floor... The ark starts to shift as the oxen stumble. When the ark starts to shift, a guy named Uzzah puts up his hand and stops it. And the very presence of our God, whom is a consuming fire, we talked about this last week, remember, breaks out against him and Uzzah dies on the spot. And people say, explain that. You see, here's the deal national regulations about how they were to move the ark and how they were to treat the temple of God were very specific and very direct. And they were not breaking an individual's rule. They were breaking a national rule and it affected the national experience. Because this was going to lower their value of the presence of God on that ark. I would not be surprised if Uzzah turns out to be one of our next door neighbors. I don't think you can throw Uzzah into the camp of the murderers and the and the, the hate-filled and those who have chosen not to follow after God. I think you have Uzzah being caught up in a national judgment, just like the 70,000 were caught up in a national judgment. You follow? Makes me wonder about the modern world and national judgment. But that's a sermon for a week or two later. But if you don't understand that there's a different application between national law and individual law, the Bible and the Old Testament will not make sense to you. And neither will the Pharisees called out as by Jesus when he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Neither will the curses that are brought down on Capernaum, other villages around Galilee, by Jesus. Because these are national descriptions of what it means to be followers of God in faith versus individual relationships with God. So have I made this painfully clear yet? Am I, I just Because this is such a pivotal thing for your understanding of Scripture. Here's the law in Exodus chapter 30. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, when you take a census, when you do what? When you count, when you take a census, right? A census is a count. When you take a census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself. Give what? A ransom for himself to the Lord. And when you number them, that there may be no what? Plague among them when you number them. There had already been a rule about counting. There had already been an instruction from God. They're actually to come with a two shekel or with a half shekel uh, reward. They're supposed to come and put this in each time as a ransom for themselves. 
This metaphor of ransoming in the Old Testament is always referring to one thing, the salvation of mankind by God's hand. They're to come and demonstrate that God is the one who is ransoming and rescuing them. Bring that shekel, put it in the offering. It'll go for the temple, but it's to remind them that they are ransoming themselves before me, that I am the reason they exist. And I am the one who cares about and cares for Israel. So far, you're with me. I promise I'm coming home. Did God change? Of course not. The God of love is dealing with a sinful people, creating a nation of witnesses that must hold a firm line and must hold a firm line on the whole. And I think that I have that thing mixed up. Let me just explain it to you. Don't walk up there. God of Israel is dealing with a sinful group of people while at the same time trying to build a nation of witnesses, while at the same time trying to keep his arms around the whole group for the whole purpose. Got it? Jesus said it to the church, to the, to the New Testament church in the following way. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I'm trying to keep my arms around you. I'm giving you instructions. I'm giving you guidance to try to bless you. Just try to give you the best possible life I can. Get it? Okay. If God is love and Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, then the biblical narrative should reflect that fact. Understanding national law versus personal law, national application of law versus personal mercy only is clear when you get that clear. Okay, last bit. David, same guy, right? David, same guy? David, one day in the springtime, happened to be out in the evening. I don't know, he was sleepy. It actually, the Bible actually says he got up from his bed. He, got, he wasn't able to sleep or whatever it was. He got up in the evening. He walks out. Now, David's house is, if you were understanding, if you understand the geography of Israel and you know where the Dome of the Rock is up on top of that plateau, that, uh, that flat spot on top, there's a, there's a prow, like a prow of a ship that comes up toward that. David's house is on the top of that prow, not up on the mountain where the temple is, but at the top of that prow. And all of the, all of the, the city of Jerusalem was laying out in front of him. So you look down on everybody. And that's a metaphor all by itself. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is not that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And if you know, if you've read, if you've been, if you've been looking at Kings and Chronicles, and you've been looking at David's mighty men, you'll know Uriah is one of the 30 mighty men. This is some of the loyal, most loyal people ever in Israel. He is, he is one of the men who stands for David when everything else is falling around him. So here's this man who is a very, very faithful servant of David, which he'll prove in, in this story, but we don't have time to go over. And David sees his wife and goes, Wow. Wow. So David takes Uriah's wife to be his and has Uriah killed. Same guy. Man after God's own heart. That guy. Same guy who just got 70,000 people killed for counting. Then this, this pro, the prophet Nathan, not Gad, but a different prophet, comes to him and says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, 
I had anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to your, and your master's wives into your, to your keeping, gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. So David, come on. I've been carefully taking care of you step after step after step. I have given you blessing after blessing after multiplied blessing. If you needed more, I would have given you much more. I would have given it to you. What did you do? Why did you do this? Verse 9, same chapter. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. Same guy. Same guy. 70,000 people die because he counts. He's just murdered a man and taken his wife. What would you do? Which one of these would be more egregious to you? Counting? Or having a man murdered so you can have his wife. Probably the same as mine, right? Do you know what happens in this story? Here's David's response when confronted. It's a longer psalm. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Now, knowing what you have seen him do, overcounting, what would you have expected him to do here? <laughs> Next! Right? Lightning bolt from heaven. <laughs> David into a pile of dust like a cartoon figure. <laughs> Fill that seat with somebody else. But this isn't national. Law-breaking. This is individual law-breaking. Do you see the difference? Do you know what happened? This is not about the nation losing faith. This is not about trying to keep your arms around this whole group of people to keep them going in one direction when, the, when they're so easily tipped away from God. This is about one man and his terrible transgression. His horrible transgression. And what does God do? He forgives David. David suffers the consequences of this choice. God doesn't take away the consequences of our sins. But he blots the history of them out. Do you understand the difference? Do you understand the importance of the difference? God doesn't take away the consequences of our foolish behavior. If I decide to go down and, and get a butterfly tattooed on my forehead, there will be consequences. When I was in college, we used to go down to watch a uh, comedian street performer on uh, Pier 39. He was called the Butterfly Man. Because on the top of his head, he had a butterfly about this big tattooed. That's why we called him the Butterfly Man. There are consequences to giant tattoos like that. 
If I decide to do certain things with my life, make certain choices in my life, I'm going to suffer consequences from those things. It's just the way it is. But God can wipe away the memory, the history of that decision from the records of heaven and write my name in the book of life as if nothing had ever happened. That's the difference between what you're looking at in these two applications of rules. And if you apply national law to the individual situation, you're going to really struggle with understanding the God of love whose imprint is Jesus. If you try to, if you don't recognize that the merciful hand of God is alive and well in the Old Testament as well as the New, you will struggle to try to make sense of this whole thing. David will suffer the consequences for the rest of his life. He doesn't apparently feel like he has the moral authority to stand up to his sons and they go wild and lots of trouble happens after this. And maybe David did give up his moral authority that day. But the mercy of God prevails on David's record. And it's cleaned. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That's his request of God. And that's the answer to his prayer. So I'll leave you with two things. Number one, having to do with the first half of the story. What are you trusting in? I think it's a question that first world human beings have to ask all the time. What am I trusting in? It shifts around. It shifts around. Am I, and I trust, am I trusting in my own intellect and how smart I am, how clever I am, how, how much ability I have? Am I trusting in, in what I've got in my pocket? Am I trusting in uh, the relationships I've built? Am I trusting in my job? Am I trusting in, am I trusting in, am I trusting in? Because the call is to trust in the name of our God. And second, if you think that you have crossed a bridge and blown it up and God can't repair it, you're wrong. David had done one of the worst things ever recorded by a follower of God. And God forgave him. Reinstated him. And walked with him the rest of his life. He'll do the same for you and me. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We recognize that we are not very good at following you. We pray that you would rebuild the bridges we've burned. That you'd keep us from being so dumb that we burn another one tomorrow. Did you help us to understand who you are? Help us to think clearly about your character. 
Help us to follow you, to know you, to trust you, to be men and women and children after God's own heart, fulfilling the purposes of God in our lives on this planet as David and his. We'd like to do it without making quite quite as many messes. We pray that we would hold firmly to your hand as you lead us home. Trusting you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.